we are back in the book of Isaiah. If you'd like to open up there to Isaiah chapter 13. And this is going to be the first of a, probably a two-part message here. So this will be part one this morning. We'll do part two uh, next Sunday. And we're moving forward through the book of Isaiah. We're now in Isaiah chapter 13. We just finished up the prophecies, the series of prophecies to King Ahaz from Isaiah 7 to, uh, to Isaiah chapter 12. So Isaiah 13, let's read the first four verses. Isaiah 13, verse 1. The burden or oracle against Babylon, which Isaiah the son of Amos saw. Lift up a banner on the high mountains. Raise your voice to them. Wave your hand that they may enter the gates of the nobles. I have commanded my sanctified ones... I have also called my mighty ones for my anger, those who rejoice in my exaltation. The noise of a multitude in the mountains, like that of many people, a tumultuous noise of the kingdoms of nations gathered together, the Lord of hosts musters the army for battle. Skipping to verse 17, he says, Behold, I will stir up the Medes against them, who will not regard silver, and as for gold, they will not delight in it. And then chapter 14 continues the prophecy, verses 1 through 4. For the Lord will have mercy on Jacob, and will still choose Israel, and settle them in their own land. The strangers will be joined with them, and they will cling to the house of Jacob. Then people will take them and bring them to their place, and the house of Israel will possess them for servants and maids in the land of the Lord. They will take them captive, whose captives they were, and rule over their oppressors. Verse 3, it shall come to pass in the day the Lord gives you rest from your sorrow and from your fear and the hard bondage in which you were made to serve, that you will take up this proverb against the king of Babylon and say... How the oppressor has ceased, the golden city ceased. So I've entitled this message this morning, Set My People Free. Set My People Free. As we just read in chapter 14, verse 2, it says the Lord is going to allow them. They will take them captive whose captives they were and they will rule over their oppressors. So this is speaking to the children of Israel. God has a promise that he is going to judge Babylon who was oppressing them, who was going to carry them away into captivity uh, into Babylon for 70 years. Uh, God is telling his people he is going to judge Babylon and he is going to bring his people back into their promised land. He's going to set uh, the captives free. Now, Moses was a deliverer of sorts. He was a prefigure of Jesus Christ in that he set the people of God free from the bondage and the slavery of Egypt. And we know that that was a shadow and a type of Jesus who would come and who would set the captives free from the bondage of sin in this world, which is like Egypt, a world where we really don't fit in as God's people. 
And so we see that God raises up deliverers and God uses them to set his people free from bondage. And we're told that Moses delivered God's people, the children of Israel, from Egypt with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. We are going to be studying here over the next couple of weeks an incredible prophecy of another deliverer, like Moses was called to be a deliverer for God's people when they were in Egypt. God is calling another individual named Cyrus. It's one of the most amazing prophecies in the whole Bible, actually. Isaiah has so many great prophecies, as you know if you've been with us uh, for this study through, so far through uh, Isaiah chapter 13. But this is such an amazing specific prophecy that we're going to look at today and then next Sunday about this Medo-Persian king named Cyrus that God called out by name 150 years before he was ever born. And it's, uh, it's phenomenal. You're going to be blown away. But Cyrus was another one of God's deliverers. He would set God's people free from the captivity and the bondage of slavery uh, of a sort in Babylon. In Isaiah, again, Isaiah chapter 14 and verse 1, For the Lord will have mercy on Jacob, and he will choose Israel and settle them in their own land. The strangers will be joined with them. They will cling to the house of Jacob. Then people will take them and bring them to their place. And the house of Israel will possess them for servants and maids in the land of the Lord. They will take them captive, whose captives they were, and rule over their oppressors. And then God says that he's going to come against the king of Babylon in verse 4. You will take this proverb against the king of Babylon and say how the oppressor has ceased. And the golden city, speaking of Babylon, has ceased. Now, Last uh, Wednesday night, we looked through the entire chapter of Isaiah 13 and its fulfillment during the Great Tribulation period because many of Isaiah's prophecies had a contemporary uh, fulfillment that happened within the lifetime of his hearers or shortly thereafter the lifetime of his hearers. Uh, And then they had a more distant fulfillment, that there was a prophecy in the near term and in the far term that would be fulfilled. And these are God's evidences that he is the author of the Bible, that he is the one who inspired the scriptures, that he could tell you the future in advance, that he could give a prophet a prophecy of things that would happen in 50 or 100 years contemporary to that prophet, and something that's going to happen 2,500 years later. Only God knows the future. And so prophecy becomes a very uh, strong apologetic for the defense of the inspiration of the Scriptures. In Isaiah chapter 14, verse 22, we know that Isaiah the prophet is talking to specifically contemporary Babylon uh, here, in addition to the uh, future Babylon, which is the economic and spiritual uh, horror Babylon is what is called, uh, or the harlot in Revelation chapter 17 and Revelation chapter 18. There is a future Babylon that God is going to judge when Jesus Christ comes back uh, the second time. But there was also a literal prophecy that God was going to judge Babylon uh, in the immediate future. He says in verse 22 of Isaiah 14, For I will rise up against them, says the Lord of hosts, and cut off from Babylon 
the name and the remnant and offspring and posterity, says the Lord. I will also make it a possession for the porcupine and marshes of muddy water. I will sweep it with the broom of destruction, says the Lord of hosts. And so when Isaiah was writing these prophecies, he no doubt had contemporary Babylon in mind. He wasn't necessarily thinking of something happening 2,600 years later, uh, although God showed him the future in that way. But there was a, uh, a, a more contemporary fulfillment that was going to come with the nation of Babylon. Now, it's, it's interesting that Babylon really wasn't much of a nation at this time that the prophecy uh, was given. We're told that uh, in Isaiah chapter 14, verse 28, that this prophecy or this oracle was given in the year that King Ahaz died. So the, the year that King Ahaz died was roughly 715 years before Christ. 715 B.C., the historians tell us, is when King Ahaz died. So this prophecy that God is speaking through Isaiah is at a time, 715 B.C., the year King Ahaz died, that Babylon really wasn't much of a nation at all. Uh, the Medes and the Persians had not come together as, as, as a nation at this time. And so he's calling out the Medes by name. He's calling out the Babylonians by name before they were even a powerful nation, either of them. At the time that he was writing this, the powerhouse of the region was the Assyrians. The Assyrians were the powerful nation that conquered the ten northern tribes just before Ahaz died. 721 or 722 B.C. is when the Assyrians carried Israel, uh, the nation of Israel, which were comprised of the ten northern tribes, away into captivity in Assyria. Assyria would be uh, uh, modern-day um, Iraq and uh, Babylon, also modern-day Iraq, that, that area of, of modern-day Iraq. Um, and so... We, we find this interesting theme in the Bible, this interesting uh, pattern in the Bible where you see, for example, God giving uh, a prophecy to Isaiah about the Messiah. I'll, I'll, I'll just give you one example of how this works. In Isaiah chapter 61 and verse 1, Isaiah the prophet is speaking about uh, the Messiah. He says, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me. Because the Lord has anointed me to preach good tidings to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn. And then it continues. Now, many of you will recognize this prophecy because Jesus Christ actually read this exact scroll when he was in the synagogue, when he was first starting out in his public ministry. And he quoted from that exact passage uh, and said it was concerning himself. In Luke chapter 4, verse 17, Jesus was handed the scroll of the prophet Isaiah. And when he had opened the scroll, he found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim 
the acceptable year of the Lord. And he stopped right there. He stopped reading right there in the middle of the prophecy. And then he closed the scroll, it says in verse 20, and he gave it back to the attendant and he sat down. And the eyes of all who were in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Now, he did not read the entire prophecy. He only read the part of the prophecy that applied to his first coming. Uh, Sight to the blind, preaching the gospel, healing the brokenhearted, proclaiming liberty to the captives, uh, liberty to those who are oppressed, proclaiming the acceptable year of the Lord. He came and fulfilled all of these prophecies in his first coming. But there were other prophecies that are being uh, predicted here that Jesus did not yet fulfill. So if you go back to Isaiah 61, where Jesus was reading the scroll from, again, he reads through the end of verse 2 to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. And he stops because the next verse says, And the day of vengeance of our God. When Jesus came the first time, he didn't come to bring the day of vengeance of our God. He came to bring good news and, and to heal the brokenhearted, liberty of the captives, and so forth. So Jesus stopped right there because this prophecy was broken up. Part of it would be fulfilled at his first coming, and part of it would be fulfilled at his second coming. So there's a pattern even in the scriptures that even Jesus coming to fulfill the prophecies, some of them were fulfilled at his first coming, and there are many prophecies that will be fulfilled later at his second coming. Now, Babylon was not the world power, as I mentioned, uh, when Isaiah was writing this prophecy down. Babylon was a nation, but it wasn't a very powerful nation at, at 715 uh, uh, B.C. Assyria dominated the Middle East until approximately 625 B.C. And that's when Babylon and the Babylonians revolted against the powerful Assyrian Empire. Uh, there was a king named, named Nabopolassar. King Nabopolassar of Babylon uh, was the father of King Nebuchadnezzar. And Nebuchadnezzar was the king that came and attacked Judah and Jerusalem, besieged the city of Jerusalem, carried away captives, took them into Babylon for 70 years. And Nabopolassar was Nebuchadnezzar's father. Nebuchadnezzar was actually his general uh, uh, from 624 until approximately 604 B.C., uh, he was also a co-regent with his father for two years, the historians tell us. And we have so much uh, archaeological evidence for all of this history. It's, it's, it's not even a question anymore as to whether all these things happened historically. The secular atheist archaeologists have proven all of these things did happen in history, uh, exactly as the Bible said they did. And so the... Uh, father of Nebuchadnezzar was the one who rebelled against Assyria. Ultimately, they destroyed the capital of Assyria, which was Nineveh, in 607 BC. And Assyria was no longer the world power in the Middle East. It was now Babylon. But again, uh, Isaiah is writing this approximately 715 years before Christ. So it's way over 100 years from the time that Babylon would even become a world power power because again God uh, knows the future. Now Nebuchadnezzar was a king for 45 years historians tell us from 606 to 561 
B.C. Nebuchadnezzar was the king of Babylon. Uh, He besieged Jerusalem. He carried away the first captives from Jerusalem, including Daniel, uh, who wrote the book of Daniel, and Ezekiel, the prophet who wrote the book of Ezekiel. Uh, He carried them away captive in 609 B.C. So the first part of the captivity began when Babylon came against Jerusalem, basically asking for money, blood money really, uh, to, to, to kind of buy their own protection. They had to pay tribute to the king of Babylon if they wanted to be protected from the king of Babylon. Uh, and so that uh, was in 609 BC. And uh, they uh, broke Egypt. Nebuchadnezzar uh, broke Egypt in the famous battle of Carchemish in 605 BC, a famous, famous battle of the ancient world the Battle of uh, Carchemish, where the power of Egypt was finally broken. That ancient uh, powerhouse of Egypt was broken by the Babylonians in 605 B.C. Now, Daniel's prophecy, uh, the writings of Daniel, actually speak about this. And again, this is an amazing prediction that God made uh, before it happened, hundreds of years before it happened, some of these uh, predictions in in Daniel. But for example, in Daniel chapter 2, when Daniel was in Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar was the powerful king who was ruling over Babylon and had carried away the captives and taken them into captivity from Jerusalem. God showed Nebuchadnezzar a statue in his dream. This pagan Gentile king had a dream, and God was showing him the future Gentile kingdoms of the world, starting with himself. We read in Daniel chapter 2 and verse 31, this prophecy of the statue and its interpretation. Daniel 2.31 says this, You, O king, were watching, this is Daniel speaking to King Nebuchadnezzar in Babylon, You, O king, we're watching, and behold, a great image, or statue. This great image, whose splendor was excellent, stood before you, and its form was awesome. This image's head was of fine gold, its chest and arms of silver, its belly and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. You watched while a stone was cut out without hands, which struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and broke them in pieces. Skip to verse 36. He says, this is the dream. Now we will tell the interpretation of it before the king. So the king had this dream of this statue. It troubled him. He knew it meant something. He called all of his sages, all of his wise men, all of his astrologers. They could not interpret the dream. So he called Daniel, one of the Hebrew boys. Uh, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, and Daniel were introduced in Daniel chapter 1 in the king's court. They were royalty. They were part of the royal family of Judah. And, uh, and so they became part of the court of uh, King Nebuchadnezzar. Uh, they were probably eunuchs, which is why Daniel was never married. Uh, at least it's not recorded that Daniel was married because often the pagan kings would uh, uh, make the men into eunuchs so that they could be around the harems and things like this. And Daniel was most likely uh, a eunuch, as would have been uh, most of the advisors in this day. And so the king had this dream that troubled him greatly. And Daniel tells him, I know your dream. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar didn't tell him what the dream was. 
God showed Daniel what the dream was. So he says, I know your dream, what you saw, and I'm going to tell you, God has shown me what the interpretation of your dream is. And so he continues in verse 36 of Daniel 2. He says, this is the dream. Now we will tell the interpretation of it before the king. You, O king, are a king of kings. For the God of heaven has given you a kingdom, power, strength, and glory. And wherever the children of men dwell, or the beasts of the field, or the birds of the heaven, he has given them into your hand. He has made you ruler over them. You are this head of gold. But after you shall arise another kingdom inferior to yours, and then another, a third kingdom of bronze, which shall rule over all the earth. And the fourth kingdom shall be as strong as iron, inasmuch as iron breaks in pieces and shatters everything. And like iron that crushes, the kingdom will break in pieces and crush all the others. Verse 41. Whereas you saw the feet and the toes, partly of potter's clay and partly of iron, the kingdom shall be divided. Yet the strength of the iron shall be in it, just as you saw the iron mixed with ceramic clay. And as the toes of the feet were partly of iron and partly of clay, so the kingdom shall be partly strong and partly fragile." As you saw iron mixed with ceramic clay, they will mingle with the seed of men, but they will not adhere to one another, just as iron does not mix with clay. And in the days of these kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed, and the kingdom shall not be left to other people. It shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms, and it shall stand forever." Inasmuch as you saw that the stone was cut out of the mountain without hands, and that it broke in pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold, the great God has made known to the king what will come to pass after this. The dream is certain, and its interpretation is sure. Incredibly, God showed Nebuchadnezzar the future from, from that point forward, of all of the Gentile uh, powers that would rule over Israel, from that point forward. Remember, uh, the Jews were removed out of their Holy Land because of disobedience. They uh, were not keeping the law of Moses. They were going after other gods. They didn't give the land its Sabbath rest every six years. They were supposed to give it a year off, and they didn't do that for 490 years. They worked the land without giving the land its Shabbat or its Sabbath rest. And so God said, I'm going to remove you from your land for 70 years, take you into Babylon, that the land will have its rest. And so uh, God was uh, punishing his people through these pagan kings. They really lost the right to rule over themselves. Israel really didn't have a sovereign power, certainly not a monarch, that ruled over uh, Judah from about uh, 586 B.C. until the present day. Today they're not a monarchy with a king. Uh, they're a democracy with, uh, you know, elected officials and so forth. Uh, they are sovereign in their land today to some degree, but they're not a kingdom as the ancient kingdoms were ruled by a powerful ruler. Uh, and God was showing Nebuchadnezzar, you are the head of gold. You are going to be the most powerful Gentile king in, in, in history uh, from that point forward. And indeed, Nebuchadnezzar 
was the head of gold. Babylon was the glory uh, uh, and, and strength and power and so forth that God had given to Babylon as Babylon was uh, being used by God to uh, punish his people. But you notice that after Babylon, you have this inferior kingdom that comes. He says, after you shall arise another kingdom, verse 39, inferior to yours, uh, and then another, a third kingdom uh, of bronze, which shall rule over all the earth. So you're, you're going from pure, precious, 24-karat gold, the finest, uh, most valuable metal around, to silver, to bronze, uh, to iron. And then you have the iron and the clay with uh, the statue with the ten toes made of iron and clay. And what God was showing Daniel and showing Nebuchadnezzar was these kingdoms that would come. First was the Babylonian kingdom. The Babylonians only really ruled for about 70 years. They went downhill pretty quickly uh, after Nebuchadnezzar uh, died. And they were conquered by the Medo-Persians. The Medo-Persians would have been uh, the silver, represented by the silver in the statue. Very valuable, but not as valuable as gold is. And so not as powerful and not as glorious as the Babylonian kingdom was. The Medo-Persian empire uh, conquered the Babylonians, as we're going to see here over the next couple of weeks. But after the Medo-Persian empire ruled over that part of the land for a couple of hundred years, then came Alexander the Great and the Greek empire. And Alexander the Great came and conquered again. This is all the rulers over the Holy Land and the Middle East. Uh, he would have been the bronze, or the Greek empire would have been uh, the bronze. So not as glorious and, 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 and you know, valuable as silver or as gold, but it's still a valuable metal, the bronze. And then you have its legs of iron and its feet partly of clay and iron. The iron speaks of the Roman Empire, which came in after the Greek Empire and conquered the Middle East and conquered the whole known world, the Roman Empire. Uh, the, they were categorized and looked at in the statue as iron, which is not a beautiful uh, uh, metal, but it's a powerful metal. It's a strong metal, and they were a strong, powerful uh, devastating army, the Roman uh, army. Nobody could oppose them or stand against them. And then you have the future revived Roman Empire pictured here with the feet partly of iron and partly of clay with the statue and the ten toes representing the ten kings of the book of Revelation that are going to come in the last days. And then one of those ten kings is going to take over and rule over uh, the revived Roman Empire, and we know that this is the man of sin, the son of perdition, the Antichrist, who is to come. And so God showed Nebuchadnezzar the future. He showed the interpretation to Daniel, who then interpreted the dream to the king, and the, and, and the interpretation was correct. I mean, how could uh, anyone have known that this would be the future of the rulers and the Gentile kingdoms uh, but that's exactly what happened, exactly as God predicted it uh, through the, the dream to Nebuchadnezzar. So it came to pass. Now it's interesting that after the uh, clay and the iron, the revived Roman Empire, you have the stone smashing the statue. The stone, it says... Um, Verse 44, the days of these kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed. 
and the kingdom shall not be left to another people. All the other kingdoms, someone else conquered them and took over the land, right? The Babylonians lost it to the Medes and the Persians. Medes and the Persians lost it to Alexander the Great and the Greeks. The Greeks lost it to the Romans, and in the end, the Romans are going to be revived as a uh, economic and a military and a political powerhouse in the last days. Uh, but he says, uh, after all of this, there's going to be a kingdom which will not be replaced, which will not be destroyed, and that kingdom shall not be left to another people. It shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms, and it shall stand forever. Inasmuch as you saw that the stone was cut out of the mountain without hands, and that it broke in pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold, the great God has made known to the king what, what will come to pass after this. So you have the stone that's cut out of a mountain in the dream that smashes the statue, and then that stone fills the whole earth. And Daniel says, this is a kingdom which will never be destroyed. This is a kingdom which is going to be forever that is going to destroy all of the kingdoms and all of the pagan Gentile kings of the world and rule over all the people forever and ever. And we know that the stone is Jesus Christ. He is the stone that the builders rejected that has become the chief cornerstone. Jesus said, blessed are those who do not stumble over me. And so Jesus is the one who will fulfill that prophecy. It hasn't happened yet, but it will happen. All of the other predictions have come true. And Jesus will crush the Antichrist and the revived Roman Empire at his second coming. And then he will rule and reign over all the earth forever and ever. Prophecy is one of the great proofs that the Bible is an inspired book. Prophecy, God gives us the future events before they happen. Man can't do that. Man can guess. You know, Nostradamus is like, they, they claim Nostradamus, uh, you know, is a prophet. But do you know that Nostradamus was wrong with 95 or 96 percent of his prophecies that he made? I mean, there's only about 4 percent, maybe 5 percent of his prophecies that you could maybe fit into history. Uh, but, but really, it's a stretch. I mean, there really uh, was, was not anything that Nostradamus predicted that literally came true. Uh, most of the prophecies were vague and unclear and so forth. And that's kind of like the best that man has to offer is, you know, uh, only about a 4% uh, uh, correct uh, guess. You know, 96% wrong. You could even flip a quarter and be right 50% of the time guessing the future. But when you start to make specific prophecies about things that haven't happened that are hundreds or thousands of years in advance, you know only God can do that. Man can't do that. We can't even predict what's going to happen in the election next week, uh, much less what's going to happen 500 years from now or 2,500 years from now. But God knows the future, and that is his evidence that the, that the Bible is not just a human book. It is a supernatural, spiritual book that the men who wrote these things, the Holy Spirit inspired them. The Holy Spirit showed them what to write, showed them the future, even though they didn't understand most of what they wrote down. They were just faithful to record what the Holy Spirit inspired them to write. And so prophecy becomes one of the great proofs that the Bible is the inspired Word of God. Because God exists outside of space, time, and matter. Space, time, and matter is created. Time had a beginning. Space had a beginning. And matter had a beginning. God is eternal. He exists outside of the space, time, 
matter continuum. So he knows the future. Prophecy is not that God is making things happen. Prophecy is God knowing what's going to happen and telling somebody beforehand, write this down, this is going to happen. It doesn't mean God, uh, you know, raised up Hitler to kill the Jews so that the Jews could have a homeland in 1948. It really bothers me when I hear pastors say that God used Hitler to, you know, punish the Jews so that the Jews could, you know, May 14th, 1948, the prophecy in Ezekiel 37, resurrected bones, dry bones coming to life, could happen. Uh, That's an abomination. That's heretical and blasphemous to suggest that God would raise up Hitler. That's disgusting and sick. Hitler was a devil. He was a demon. He was filled with Satan and with uh, the spirit of the Antichrist. He practiced the occult. He was one of the most wicked men in all of history. And by the way, those people who don't want to believe in hell, you know, and say, well, I don't think God will send people to hell because if, you know, God was nice, he would let everybody go to heaven. I don't want to go to heaven if everybody gets to go there. If Hitler's going to be in heaven, I don't want to be there. You know, of Stalin and Mao and child rapists and child molesters and, you know, murderers that are, you know, serial killers are all, you know, if God's just going to save everybody because he's so benevolent, that's not heaven. That's just like going to the earth again, having to be with wicked people for all eternity. So there is a hell. There's a place that people are going to go for judgment that deserve to go to hell. Uh, and, And so God, he tells us the future in advance He wants us to know that this is his word. This book is not just a human book. It is a supernatural, divine book. And because God knows the future, he can tell someone the future before it happens. It doesn't mean he's making that future happen. It means that he is telling somebody, this is what's coming, John. Write this down in the book of Revelation. Write this down. Write this down. Write down what you see. And John didn't understand a thing, but he wrote it all down. Now we see that much of what John was writing about in the book of Revelation has happened and is happening right before our eyes. But John didn't know it. God was showing him what was going to come in the future. That's prophecy. It's interesting that there are over 300 Old Testament prophecies concerning Uh, The first coming of Jesus Christ, over 300, 25 specific, very specific prophecies from the Old Testament that Jesus Christ fulfilled in his first coming. Do you know, according to the laws of statistical probability, uh, you know, just for 10 prophecies to be specifically fulfilled from the Old Testament time, written hundreds or thousands of years in advance, uh, the odds of 10 specific prophecies being fulfilled by Jesus would be astronomical. To say that there are 25 specific prophecies fulfilled and 300 more general prophecies fulfilled with the first coming of Jesus Christ, it's beyond the pale of statistical probability. It is, you know, into the realm of impossibility uh, to say it happened, you know, just, just uh, uh, through laws of probability. It, it, it is the future in advance, and this is God's signature that this is his word he's telling us what is going to come and then it comes to pass and then we know that this is the word of god turn with me to isaiah chapter 41 we read in verse 21 concerning this idea of god showing his prophets the future isaiah 41 and verse 21 present your case says the lord Bring forth your strong reasons, says the king of Jacob. Let them bring forth and show us what will happen. 
Let them show the former things, what they were, the things that have already happened, that we may consider them, and know the latter end of them, or declare to us things to come. Show the things that are to come hereafter, that we may know that you are God's. Yes, do good or do evil, that we may be dismayed and see it uh, together. So God is, is basically calling out the idols of the land. The people were worshiping idols, false gods, statues that had demons. Power uh, was a demon behind the statue. And God is saying, um, you know, uh, if, if you're a real God, if these statues, Baal or Ashtoreth or Molech or these other gods that were worshipped uh, in the ancient world, he says, if you're really gods, then tell me the past, everything that's happened, where did we come from? How did, how did we get here? Where did everything start? Uh, and, and if you look at the um, origin stories of like Hinduism and, and Buddhism and Taoism and Baha'i faith, some of the old uh, Eastern religions, it's nonsensical. Their origin stories are such complete nonsense that no rational person would believe that Hinduism or Buddhism can tell you where you came from. It's like that the earth, you know, the universe you know, threw up and the earth came and then there was a turtle and the earth is sitting on the back of the turtle. And, you know, I mean, it's madness. And so they don't know where they came from. Their gods can't say how we all got here. You know, of the Greek and the Roman mythologies and so forth and Zeus and uh, Apollos and all of these things. It's, it's, it's fantasy. It's nonsense. Uh, but God told us, he wrote the Bible. He gave us the book of Genesis. He told us how we all got here. And he tells us the future. He says, show us the former things, what have already happened, uh, what they were, that we may consider them and know the latter end of them, or declare to us the things that are to come. Show us the things that are to come hereafter. If you're a God, tell me the future, God says through the prophet Isaiah. And of course, just like Nostradamus, they can't predict the future. False gods, false prophets, they can't predict the future. They have no clue. Only God exists outside of space and time. He knows the future, therefore he could show the future to his prophets. So God is saying, this is a way you will know that I am a true God. I will tell you the past, and I will tell you the future. In Isaiah 43 and verse 9, we read this. Let all the nations be gathered together, and let the people be assembled who among them can declare this and show us former things? Let them bring out their witnesses that they may be justified or let them hear and say it is truth. You are my witnesses, says the Lord, and my servants whom I have chosen that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he. Before me there was no God formed, nor shall there be after me. Verse 11, I, even I, am the Lord, and besides me there is no Savior. I have declared and saved, I have proclaimed, and there was no foreign God among you. Therefore you are my witnesses, says the Lord God. Indeed, before the day was, I am he, and there is no one who can deliver out of my hand. I work, and who will reverse it? And so God is saying, I am God, I will tell you the future. You are my witnesses, says the Lord, that, um, you know, uh, before me there was no God formed, nor shall there be any God after me. He's the only God. All these other gods of the, of the nations are false gods, and they're represented 
uh, by demons and fallen angels and devils. And they don't know the future. They can't predict the future. In Isaiah chapter 44, in verse 6, we read this. Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel, and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts. I am the first and I am the last. Besides me, there is no God. And who can proclaim as I do? Then let him declare it and set it in order for me, since I appointed the ancient people and the things that are coming and shall come. Let them show these to them. Do not fear nor be afraid. Have I not told you from that time and declared it? You are my witnesses. Is there a God besides me? Indeed, there is no other rock. I know not one. And so God is again saying, I am God, I will tell you what's coming, and no one else can tell you the future uh, but me. And then in Isaiah chapter 46 and verse 9, we read this. Remember the former things of old, for I am God, and there is no other. I am God, and there is none like me. Declare the end from the beginning, and from ancient times things that are not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand, and I will do all my pleasure. Calling a bird of prey from the east, the man who executes my counsel from a far country, indeed I have spoken it, I will also bring it to pass. I have purposed it, I will also do it. Said and done, God says. If I say it, I'm going to do it. And this is how you will know that I am God. And I'm not like the false gods of the lands. The psalmist would say that in Psalm 115, Psalm 135, that the gods of these men have uh, their statues. They have eyes, but they cannot see. They have ears, but they cannot hear. Uh, they have mouths, but they cannot speak. There's no breath in them. They have legs, but they cannot walk. They're just dumb idols, dumb, deaf, and blind idols. And God contrasts that with himself. He is the great I am. He's always existed. He will always exist. He spoke and the universe leapt into existence. And all of the other religions eventually break down. If you study religion and you, you look for an origin story, you look for practically how you can live with this religious belief, and then you look at what their future uh, for their believers uh, would predict, and there's no other religion besides Christianity. or It's a relationship with Jesus Christ, but it is a religion around the world, Christianity, compared to Buddhism or uh, Hinduism or uh, Islam or these other religions. Uh, and Christianity is the only one that tells us where we came from, tells us how we got here, tells us what the purpose of our life is, and tells us what's going to happen to us after we die. You know, uh, the Hindus and the Buddhists, they, uh, they teach in reincarnation. But if you think about that, uh, where, where did all the souls come from to create all the ants and all the bugs and all the cockroaches? Because they think that everything has a little soul running around. Uh, the snakes, the cockroaches, the fleas, anything that's animated has a soul. And, you know, if you're really, really good at Buddhism or, you know, you're good at Hinduism, uh, maybe you'll, you'll be able to ascend to be an ascended master or to become a god uh, but probably not. You're probably going to be recycled back as a cockroach, and you're going to have to start all over again to become a man with no knowledge of your previous lives, you know, and hope that somehow you're a good Buddhist so that you can be an ascended master and not be recycled back in as another little soul. 
Uh, but I mean, you, you look at just the population of the bugs on the planet. There's a lot more bugs on the planet today than there were 6,000 years ago, let's say. Where did all those little souls come from? There's almost 8 billion people on the planet today. Uh, where did all those souls come from if souls are recycled? You know, it doesn't make any sense. Not only do they teach in reincarnation, the Eastern religions, uh, but they also believe in ghosts. They also believe in spirit worship or ancestor worship. For example, the Buddhists in Japan, they believe that their loved ones are still around. They offer sacrifices to them. They put out shrines to them in their houses and so forth. And to some degree, they pray to their dead loved ones, which is ancestor worship. But that's a contradiction from what they say they believe, because they say they believe the soul is recycled in reincarnation. How could the soul of their ancestors be there to take their sacrifices that they offer when they pray to them if they've been recycled as a cockroach? You see, so it's it's a, it's a contradiction. It's illogical. Christianity is the only logical faith. Muslims, uh, they're a monotheistic religion, but they just beheaded, the Muslims just beheaded a teacher in Paris, France, because the teacher showed some pictures of the Prophet Muhammad. One of the parents uh, put it out online, hey, they're blaspheming Muhammad at my kid's school in Paris, uh, France. And so some psychopath uh, went out there, an 18-year-old, and stabbed this teacher to death and cut his head off because he's a good Muslim. And that's what Islam tells them to do in their holy book, in the Quran, for the infidels. Uh, and so it's a wicked religion. Islam is a wicked religion. Uh, Allah is a very wicked God. Uh, the uh, Muslims are terrified of Allah. They don't even think that Allah is nice. They're afraid of him. That's why they do terrible things to other people. Put suicide vests on their teenage kids and send them on the buses to blow up uh, Jews or Israelis or Christians. Uh, it's, it's a, it, it is a, a, a very violent, uh, wicked religion. Islam is. So if you can't say Islam is true and Buddhism is true and Christianity is true. They can't all be true because they're all different. They teach different about a different na nature and character of God. They te teach a different history, origin story. They, they teach a different way to live. Uh, and they teach a different eschatology uh, or the future. They can't all be true. All roads cannot lead to God because they're different roads. They're going to lead to other destinations. Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life, and no one comes to the Father but through me. There's only one way through Jesus Christ, the exclusivity of the gospel message. Believe on the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved. There's no other name given under heaven by which men must be saved except the name of Jesus. It may not be popular, it may not be politically correct, but it is the truth. Now, the prophecies in Isaiah are so amazing because it proves that God is the author and that God is outside of space and time. He knows the future. He knows what's coming. Uh, we have even the Dead Sea Scrolls, uh, which were discovered uh, recently in modern history, the last 75 years over there uh, in Qumran by the Dead Sea in Israel. And the Dead Sea Scrolls were copied uh, at least 150 years, 200 years before Christ. And the Dead Sea Scrolls, they have the Isaiah scroll, and it's completed. The Isaiah scroll, the whole scroll of Isaiah is there. It was established. The Jews 
knew that this was the word of God. It's never been altered. It's never been changed. We have the evidence of this. So God shows his prophets the future before it happens. Jesus said, I tell you these things in advance so that when they come to pass, you may believe that I am he. Jesus gave a tremendous amount of prophecy related to his second coming to his disciples. And he says, I'm telling you these things so that when you see these prophecies fulfilled, you will know that I am God. I am who I said I am. I'm the son of God, the only begotten son of God, the great I am, the eternal word, the word uh, who has been around forever and who became flesh and dwelt among us we have so many prophecies that have been fulfilled in our lifetime for example in ezekiel 37 the dry bones prophecy of israel becoming a nation again in their land against all odds israel came back after the holocaust into the promised land through the zionist movement uh, and the world had empathy on the jews because of hitler and the holocaust and they voted uh, November 29th, 1947, the United Nations voted to allow Israel to be uh, a homeland for the Jewish people. And then May 14th, 1948, as you know, uh, they declared their independence and they established the sovereignty of their nation. So we saw this prophecy fulfilled in our lifetime. Ezekiel chapter 37 has been fulfilled. Jesus made a promise to his disciples. He said, I'm going to build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against her. Against all odds. The church has survived for 2,000 years. My goodness. The church is such a mess. I've been a pastor a long time. Uh, churches are messy. Christians can be difficult. You get wolves in sheep's clothing among the flock. You get you know, false prophets. You get people who want to lead disciples after themselves. Uh, or come in with weird theology and confuse the sheep. You have goats. Uh, who are among the sheep that aren't even saved and that are just kind of at church because it's a social function or because they want to make business connections or they want to, you know, meet a spouse or all these other reasons that people go to church. It's not because they want to come to know God and love God. Uh, and so if, if the church is not a supernatural entity, it wouldn't have existed for 2,000 years. Just look at the history of the church. Look at the Roman Catholic Church and the Inquisition and the, you know, all of the, the, the terrible things that were done uh, in the name of Jesus Christ where, you know, they would burn people at the stake. The church would burn people at the stake. They would torture people uh, to get them to confess to, to being a Christian and so forth. Terrible, terrible things throughout history. Look at the Church of England and the abuses of those kings and the abuses of the popes of the ancient world. And yet, the church is still alive on planet Earth today. Why? Because Jesus said it would be. He said, I will build my church, and against all odds, the gates of hell will not prevail against my church. And today the church is alive and well on planet Earth after 2,000 years of messy history, a lot of terrible things done to the Jews and to other people in the name of Jesus Christ throughout the church's history, and yet the church remains. I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. We've seen that prophecy fulfilled. Jesus said that this gospel message will go out to the whole world in Matthew 24. He says, and this gospel, gospel shall be preached as a witness to the whole world, and then the end will come. You know, when Jesus was saying that, he only had 12 apostles. One of them was a devil. Judas Iscariot was betraying him to his enemies at this time. So he really only had 11 uh, apostles or disciples that he, had, that he had handpicked and he had trained for three and a half years. What are the odds that he says 
the gospel message, which is the good news of Jesus Christ coming uh, to save the world, to die for the sins of the world, and to be raised on the, on the third day, to give eternal life and salvation through his life, death, and resurrection. He says, that's the gospel, and I'm telling you, this message will be preached to the whole world. And once that happens, the end is going to come. Now, what were the odds of probability, laws of probability, that any message from 2,000 years ago would get to the whole world uh, from some itinerant, you know, rabbi or itinerant preacher uh, at that time who was only on the public scene for about three and a half years? You know, it's impossible that they could have had a message go to the whole world from that time, from Jerusalem, except that Jesus is God and that the Bible is the Word of God, and God knows the future, and Jesus said this gospel will be preached to the whole world, and then the end will come. Guess what? The gospel has now been preached to the whole world. Another prophecy that we have seen fulfilled in our lifetime. In Revelation chapter 13, the Bible talks about this one world ruler, this one world government, this mark of the beast by which you will not be able to buy or to sell if you don't take the mark. What are the odds that we already now have the technology to be chipped and marked, and if you don't uh, participate with a chip or a mark, theoretically, they could turn your credit cards off, they can lock you out. Uh, everybody's got smart houses now and you know smart cars and smart everything. Well, somebody could push a button and turn off all of your things that are smart. Uh, if you don't do what they want you to do, they could, they could, they're going to go cashless. They're going to get rid of our cash probably in 2021, and it's all going to be electronic, and then you can be locked out of the economy if you don't play by the rules or do what they say, which is exactly what the Bible predicted would be the case when John wrote the book of Revelation 2,000 years ago. And then Jesus said, uh, when I return to the earth, will I find any faith upon the earth. So we know that he's going to return. He said he's going to return. He's going to come again. Acts chapter 1 verse 11. Jesus, this one who you saw go up into heaven, he's going to come back in like manner, uh, the angels told uh, those who were there when Jesus ascended into heaven. So we have the promise. Some prophecies have already been fulfilled. Some are still yet to be fulfilled. We're going to have to stop here, but uh, we'll pick up where we left off next Sunday. So I invite you to join us uh, for service next Sunday. Let's pray. Would you please stand with me? And Father, we thank you so much for your word, Lord. It's, it's just such a treasure trove, Lord. Uh, the, the further we dig into your word, the more treasure we find. We thank you, Lord, that you tell us the future in advance. We thank you, Jesus, that you warned us of what the world would look like in the last days. It sure looks a lot like what we see today. Lord, help us to be those who are faithful. For you asked the question, when I return, will I find any faith on the earth? Lord, strengthen our faith. We know that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. May we spend more time in your word that our faith may be stronger as the days become more challenging and more difficult. And if there are any that are here or listening to this message that don't yet know you as Savior and Lord, I pray, Father, that you would save them, that they would come to know you, that they would believe on Jesus Christ, they would be born again, and, Father, that they would be part of your family. Bless your people. Go with us this week. Use us this week, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you all.
We all want to thank you for listening. If this message has blessed you, as we all pray that it has, send the link to this podcast to your friends. Working together, we can get Michael's teaching of the whole of God's inerrant word to all those who hunger to hear it. If you would like to see this ministry expand to reach even more of the broken and lost, if you have questions, comments, and prayer requests, email us at coahpodcast at gmail.com. We would be honored to pray for you, as we hope you are praying for us. Good day and God bless from City on a Hill Church, Tehachapi, California.